Hey everybody and welcome to the 15th draft of the Untitled Movie Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Matthew Paul Rohrbeck, and I am here with my BFCA buddy, Eric Marchin. Actually, it's uh, Clint Eastwood. <laughs> we just got back from seeing... Well, it was a busy-ass day today, so... Um, we recorded it. Uh, uh, I'm eating baby, baby bell, bell cheese, cheese, and I have a beer. It's a laid-back uh, episode today. Um, we did an episode of Cinema Scene today. We sure did. Where we did the best of 2018. Yes. Then we went and saw The Mule, not one of the best of 2018. No, you but guys... a fascinating movie to discuss. Mm-hmm. If you guys want to hear our review, um, it should be up on Untitled Movie Reviews right now, which is another podcast we do yep. um, where we review uh, new release films. Um, you can get that on podcast services everywhere. Those episodes are about 20 minutes long and we review new movies. Uh, check out our review of The Mule to get more of our thoughts on that because it won't be showing up in this episode, I don't think. No. Um, speaking of that, um, this is our end of the year episode, Eric. We've, we made it. We, we did made it. 15 weeks of this thing yep. that we're doing. Yeah. Uh, if you guys didn't know, this is the Untitled Movie Podcast. Each and every week, Eric and I kind of get together and shoot the shit and talk about movies. Sometimes not movies. Sometimes we just talk about Folgers commercials or whatever the hell else is in the in our minds at that moment. Um, you can get it every week, usually Monday or Tuesdays. <laughs> we'll, we'll let you usually. know. Um, at a certain time uh, and on podcast services everywhere. Uh, we appreciate you guys listening. Um, it's been a, a great couple months at the end of the year here where we relaunched this podcast that's we've been kind of doing on and off before, um, but I'm having the time of my life, and as weird as this year has I've been, <laughs> the time yeah. of my life. Eric and I are dancing around this uh, makeshift podcast studio at my parents' house in yep. Oshawa, Ontario, Canada. Um so yeah, thank you for listening, guys. We appreciate everyone who's um, liked the podcast and subscribed and and commented and caught us in person and told us about it this year. It's been an amazing few months as I eat this cheese. So um, please, eat cheese with us. So This episode is going to be a little different. We're not going to go through the regular kind of run of show. I'm going to be chewing the entire time because I'm going to keep eating this cheese. Um, it's a fancy New Year's episode, <laughs> beer and cheese. <laughs> Uh, we're going to go through our uh, best of the year list. We're kind of going to uh, go through our top 15 of the year for this 15th episode. Yep. Um, we're also going to go through our honorable mentions. And then I thought it'd be fun to pull up our stats on Letterboxd because uh, we both have premium accounts there. And they kind of give you a fun end of the year kind of uh, stat summary about your movie watching habits that year, which I think is always fun. I usually do like a series of posts on, on social kind of showcasing this. So this is... Uh, should be going up around the same time as this episode. Um, but yeah, man, does that sound good to you? It does. It does. I I'm still processing the fact that we're almost done 2018. Like it feels like this year more so than any other has just kind of flown by. Um, the older we get, you're 30 now. Yeah, I'm almost 30. I'm 30 in like a month. But I just remember, like even you know. Come February 2019, like when Black Panther was released, a I can't year believe that ago. was this year. Yeah, yeah, I know, but but it, it just it's gone by so quickly. Like even even TIFF, like once TIFF ends, it feels like that was so long ago. You know, like just in terms of so long ago and yesterday. Yeah, like, yeah, because like part of it is like you know you're so involved and it's a big part of the you know fall lineup and the fall festival season, but then. When it's over a week or two later, you feel like you know you've, you you're going through withdrawals, and I feel that way a little bit right now with 2018 ending, where it's like, 
I'm I'm kind of in denial that it's coming to an end. I don't want it to come to an end just yet. I want more time. Right. I'm not ready for 2019. No. I need to see like 20 more movies. I mean, 2019, we're going to do a, a big preview uh, of 2019 probably on um, the next episode. We're going to take a week break for Christmas. So yeah. no new episode on Christmas Eve. And then we'll be back on New Year's Eve with a kind of 2019 preview. But yeah, dude, I'm with you. It's um, I think the older you get, the faster time goes by, obviously. And, yeah, and we'll soon um, be looking like Clint Eastwood. Yeah. And um, yeah, Black Panther feels like an eternity ago, but also feels like it was yesterday. Um, before we know it, all of those 2019 movies that were like, holy shit, Disney has this and this and this. And there's these movies coming out. Well, I mean, we'll already have seen Endgame and Star Wars before I know it, but... Um, it seems so far away right now, but right. after I reflect on it, it'll be like, God damn, we have episode nine coming out next year. We have the culmination of Avengers. We got a new Tarantino movie coming and, and that's, and, and the beach bum. Yeah. And we had, I mean, I, I, I mentioned to you a couple weeks ago when we were just talking as we, we do talk even when we're not recording. <laughs> yep. Um, strangely enough that I had, uh, almost 30 to 40 films this year that I rated four stars, four stars, stars. Um, four stars or more at a five on letterbox, which I thought was um, really interesting. Cause I didn't almost, you almost don't realize until you're reflecting like this, where you're like, Oh shit, it was a really good year for movies. And I don't think there's ever a bad year. There can be some where you don't like as much as another. And I think uh, I retweeted a tweet a little while ago of being like, every year is a good year for movies. You psychopaths. <laughs> like right. it's well, movies it, are magical and you should appreciate. You them. have to be pretty lazy to completely dismiss an entire calendar year and say there was nothing good um, in terms of a uh, theatrical release or VOD streaming or something on Netflix. There's so much I mean, look now at the platforms. Like, yeah. like there has to be something that you connect with, and no, you don't have to connect with you know the the consensus. But no. at the same time, there is stuff out there that is being made that you can no matter find what you like, for. there's got to be something it, out there it, that it you just, like. It just takes a little work to to find it and to do some research and actually you know look into uh, the different festivals that are playing and maybe find something that you know that can curate to what you were interested in yeah and whether you only see a couple movies a year and they're usually the biggest ones and i think that's where usually that mentality comes from too is like if you only go see kind of maybe the biggest things then if you didn't like four out of those 10 movies you saw or once a month that you go then you're like well i didn't like that many movies this year right but and that's also fine i mean whether you see 360 five movies like you one a day or you see 12 like i mean this is why we love this medium so much and i there is something for everyone and i feel like it's like those things like when i tell people i'm like i it's a hyperbole and i'm kind of just doing it as to be a shit disturber to be like well i don't like music i tell people that i'm like i don't like i don't listen to music i don't like music and you listen to scores i do so that's i'm bullshitting when i say that i just again i find something that i enjoy whether it's a score to a movie and i have that emotional attachment to that because i love movies so much right and i think it can go the other way and there's always and and tv has become an interesting medium where it's more and more like film now and 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 there's so many and and with these streaming services like netflix that we talk about week in and week out like 
they put out fucking three series and four movies every week. Right. So you got, and some of it is schlock, but you might like the dumb Adam Sandler movie, or maybe you like Roma, or maybe you like uh, the indie movie yeah. that played at Sundance two festivals ago yeah. that didn't get any other distribution, and then Netflix just picks it up in a package deal. There's content available everywhere at you know every week and it's just it's just a shame when somebody says whether you know it's to provoke discussion or 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 uh be a contrarian that there is nothing of value in the year that is ending right. and and for 2018 yeah i totally agree with you like there's about 30 odd movies that are even not just great movies but just solid well-made films that do what they set out to and even the films that didn't fully succeed something like boots riley sorry to bother you which is very rough around the edges but at least it's tackling big ideas and themes that are interesting and doing something that is unique and and i can respect and appreciate it for that yeah and i mean again that that 30 or so movies that i gave four star those are the movies i think are great right there's another slew of movies between that three and four mark that i think are totally watchable or totally enjoyable one way or another um and that could be uh, between 20 to 30 more movies. I don't know. I haven't really looked at that. And then, again, if I've as I get older, too, I become less, like, not less passionate, but, like, I don't get as angry when I don't like something or if someone doesn't agree with me and there's something when you're, like, in college or a teenager, which I find, like, a lot of that stuff is. And, and again, I didn't like Roma, but I, it's totally cool that everyone else has it on the top of their list and I'm not going to get angry about that or although there are people hmm. now that that are attacking the film because it's you know critical success is starting to dominate the award season in a way that i think some people do feel that oh the the wealth should be spread out a little bit more and and i do agree that you know like it's it's nice to see other films get their moment in the spotlight but a great film is a great film like yeah. you can't like and also it's know. not the movie's fault that that it's being <laughs> you know that it's being acclaimed. acclaimed like the movie doesn't set out to say hey i'm better than this other film where i'm going to eclipse something else you brought up a great point it's something that we talk about all the time that you don't necessarily have to th- make these films compete against each other and yeah again a lot it's of a the weird times... narrative it's always a very strange thing right. when you when you have these competitions and it comes out of campaigning obviously and, and i think that's more on the fan side than the actual people who make them like i mean uh, the moonlight and la la land folk talk about being like you spend so much time with these people because you're on the campaign trail essentially together that you become friends with these people and people have worked with other people who work on these other movies and they're friends with everyone they're like it's in the end you're happy for that other team and sure it sucks if you didn't win but your movie is still great like if you yeah. made it there and like it, and at it's least just, hacks off uh, ridge and, didn't win at the end of the yeah. day <laughs> and again if you like a movie it doesn't take away from you liking it if it doesn't win an award or if someone else doesn't like it that's what i just don't get but i don't want to focus on the negative and it doesn't Let's, change the movie yeah, either that's the thing that's like, what i mean like if just, you enjoyed it that's you it's it's so sub- i mean we come from I mean, our our jobs, part of our jobs is to be critical and to and not to just say movies are subjective, so who gives a shit what me or you think? But I do think, I've always said that movies are, it's an art form and it is subjective, right? Like, you might go, oh, I agree with Matt's opinion a lot of the time, or I agree with Eric's opinion, and you find that critic that you kind of 
tend to agree with a lot of the times and maybe you you go towards them to try and see what they think or maybe they're friends of yours or maybe that you just find them interesting people and you don't agree with them all the time but you think they're a great writer or a great speaker and you're like sure my views aren't them but that's why I follow them but in the end it is really up to you and you might go oh because Eric suggested this I do want to check it out but then you might not like it but or maybe you love something that Eric hated like that's still okay as well that doesn't devalidate your opinion either right Right. so and neither does the awards I mean the awards is also a part of that thing where we cover them because you know we're critics and pundits ourselves and we're talking about you know uh what movie could be nominated or what movie will be nominated and what movie missed out on potential awards consideration and you know like when we're making these lists we're not thinking oh you know like this movie is going to be on on the list because it could uh be nominated for you know 12 academy awards or nine golden globes it's because we really like the film and so we pick movies that we feel represent how we felt in the year that it was released and what it reflected in that year whether it be you know a piece of genre filmmaking or a social issue film or um a, a great animated movie or documentary so it's just a way to kind of recommend and champion films and support movies in general. And I think, I think even, you know, making lists can sometimes be arbitrary to the point because your tastes change and, you know, one day you could say, Hey, maybe my number one is actually now my number seven. It's, it's, but that's it's totally fine too, though. Yeah, that's totally fine. Sure. This podcast will live on and we'll have people go, well, you said this, but yeah. like I've looked back at years past and I, I think I forget who I was talking to, but someone was like, Oh, but this movie was your favorite movie at TIFF. But then when you did your end, of year list that movie was actually higher than another one i'm like yeah because i sat on it i watched both of them again and or my yeah exactly my feelings kind of shifted or changed they're both great films but an arbitrary list of like it's still my opinion who cares where it lands and again like i've i've gone back on i mean we tinker on letterbox we we mention them all the time but like i go back and i i have no problem changing things because yeah my opinion changes and i'm just like okay well this doesn't actually stand up anymore but if i want it to live on my very curated um stats page on letterbox i go in and i change it on my list or sometimes there's a movie i gave a four to but it's ranked higher on my best of the year list than a movie i gave four and a half to because after i'm thinking about it i go you know what i I do think that I like this movie more or this movie's better, but then again, it's it's subjective and it's your own personal opinion. And um, I think there are s- some critics who who more take the um, objective um, uh, uh, stance on it of going, no, what I'm saying is like because it's more from an intellectual background or um, an educational background where they you I think you can take a stance and go no this is bad because of or this is good because of but that's just not how I do things and, yeah and and I, I feel like both ways are valid but it like, almost becomes a competition of who has the higher ground so to speak than right than anything else I have the high ground yes <laughs> Anakin no um sorry I'm just looking uh, up some stuff as um, Matt does that uh, we, we've, uh, discussed our top five on cinema scenes. Yes. So for people that don't watch the show or can't watch the show, um, we'll go through that again, but we're also going to expand to 
15. And then we'll With also some honorable, honorable mentions, mentions yeah. because we do top 25s on Letterbox. Um, yes. So... Uh, let's go through that. You want to get, yeah, get started? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, do you want to start with some honorable mentions for you? Like, sure. Uh, that don't quite make your top 15, but some movies that you wanted to shout out? Yeah, so I will, uh, I'll go from 16 to 25, which are my honorable mentions, and just quickly run through them. Um, Paul Dano's Wildlife, uh, Black Panther, First Man, Black Klansman, The Rider, uh, Border, Vox Lux, Annihilation, the Ballad of Buster Scruggs and the Death of Stalin. So all those movies, again, like in any other year, year could be in your top five, and it shows you how strong a year it was for commercial and independent cinema. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm totally with you. Um, I there are movies that didn't even make the the top twenty five that I would a hundred percent suggest or um, uh, are I think are really really fantastic films. So some honorable mentions I wanted to kind of shout out. Uh, Jonah Hill's uh, mid-90s, which I actually really, really enjoyed a lot. Um, David Gordon Green's Halloween, um, which I absolutely loved at uh, the festival and um, and I've been eager to re-watch it. Um, just an absolute blast at Midnight Madness. Um, Annihilation, um, which I really, really liked. Visually stunning. Uh, great performance by Natalie Portman. Just creepy and weird. And, and just a shame that um, Paramount gave it the release it did in yeah. Europe and and mostly outside of North America it didn't get a proper theatrical release. Yeah, I'm with you. Um Overlord which I was uh quite surprised with. Um I en- thoroughly enjoyed the shit out of that movie. Had a blast. Um not perfect, but a, a, I think a fun World War 2 movie uh with a kind of gruesome fun third act that goes into the kind of sci-fi uh territory um love the style of it i think um the score is really excellent as well uh a movie i just re- recently watched last week uh, mandy oh yeah uh, with my boy nicolas cage which you suggested to me eric i think on last week's podcast you sure told me did. to watch it um got finally got around it's a trip uh it's colorful it's uh crazy it's um, just this weird fantasy fairy tale revenge movie that I just really, really enjoyed. Um, quickly going through this Incredibles two, I think are a surprisingly, not even surprising. It's coming from Pixar, but I mean, their sequels have been hit or miss. Right. But right. I think that this is definitely a hit. Um, didn't think I, I, I thought it was too far gone for an Incredibles sequel to really work, but it literally picks up seconds after the first movie. And, and it's a good um, rebound for yeah. Brad Bird as well, considering Tomorrowland was his last movie and was kind of almost kind of forgettable, middle-of-the-road, um, crowd-pleasing entertainment, where Incredibles 2 is the sequel that everybody wanted for so long. And even though I don't think it's the best animated movie of the year... It might even be number three. <laughs> right. It still is solid and well-made and plays into the 1950s... Uh, you know, iconography of, of that time perfectly with characters that we really care about and also just it's it's a fun and well-written movie and the action in it is is well directed yeah. yeah i thought all the jack jack stuff was great the raccoon scene is is fantastic and um yeah i thought it was uh really 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 good um this is one that I didn't expect to kind of make it but it stuck around by the end of the year um steven spielberg's ready player one i 
I don't know. It, I, it had a rough start for me, but won me over by the end of it. I, I rewatched it when it came out on Blu-ray to kind of make sure that I, <laughs> I actually did enjoy it. Um, I think it captures that kind of cheesy 80s, 80s movie vibe. Um, uh, some of the special effects, I think, are, are weird, but I can kind of buy into it. Um, yeah, well, based I mean, we, on... we, we even mentioned that, you know, you'll probably, you can come back to this movie in yeah. a few years and see if it holds up in terms of, you know, the, the motion capture and the, the special effects. Because mm-hmm. I think it's it's a movie of, of the moment as well. Like, it feels like it is pivotal to this time period. Yeah, and I... I think the references will stand up, at least the ones from the 80s. Uh, time will tell when it comes to some of the more recent um, references. But I don't know. I think Spielberg really balanced kind of the live action stuff and the um, the CG stuff really, really well. And it did feel, um, I mean, not as obviously classic as some of his his stuff that's playing at the Lightbox soon. If you're in Toronto, go check it all out. We uh, I'll be there for a lot of it. And I think you're going to kind of come with me for some of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just... I. I love Spielberg. I enjoyed this book, although I thought the writing was a little juvenile. Um, and that but the audio book by Will Wheaton, uh, yeah, not too bad. Um, so I don't know. I just kind of um, it's it's everything in there is especially my shit, and uh, um, it's cheesy, but I don't know. It won me over by the end of it. Um, Searching, I really loved with John Cho. Um, I just think um, the execution of that movie is is almost perfect. I just think it really nails that style of watching someone kind of go through this on their computer screen, and I think it really commits to that. And I think it, it it's uh, surprising. Um, it gets a little goofy and off the rails by the end, but I could kind of uh, get into that. And um, well, it's the journey, not the destination. Yeah, and the execution of it, I think, is is really well done. And and John Cho really is showing yeah. uh, an amazing. Um, eclectic uh, work right now in terms of movies like Searching, uh, Columbus, Gemini, and and we're seeing you know the guy who is in Harold and Kumar uh, really establish himself as a great leading man. Yeah, completely agree. I think he holds the movie together, and um, I mean, I was just blown away. You wouldn't think that watching someone's computer screen would be as captivating as it is, but. Um, they really kind of nail every detail and I think it's, um, very realistic in its portrayal until that last 20 minutes. Yeah, but it also um, still is a very kind of engaging procedural as well. Like it's a suspense mystery kind of thriller where we, we've seen it before, but we haven't seen it the way that it is presented in an abstract uh, form on a big screen, but on a computer screen. Yeah, and just the way it tells time through the different kind of operating systems, and I just love their attention to detail, and I just thought it was um, really, really great, like surprisingly, surprisingly great. Uh, Old Man and the Gun, um, completely and utterly charming, um, something we also saw at the festival this year. I think Robert Redford's fantastic, and I just think it's a, one of the breeziest watches you'll have all year. It's and like taken a, for granted, yeah. too. I, I feel like that's a movie that people can watch and say that, hey, it was it was great, I enjoyed it, but it was just kind of light and fluffy. But that can be really hard to pull off and make look effortless. Yeah. And the way that he, he does, and the way that David Lowry really... Man, yeah. 
gets together a wonderful ensemble and a time and place in the early 80s. Yeah, David Lowry is quickly becoming one of my favorite working directors. Like, I love a ghost story so, so, so much. And it's such and- a different movie compared to the old I mean everything he's done feels like it's completely different than the last thing and um um but he he just has this aesthetic that I just really really enjoy and while each movie is different it still feels like him in each one in a weird way if that makes sense but uh yeah I loved old man and the gun and then um another honorable mention uh which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later because I know you loved it um is burning um which is one of those movies that has just stuck around and latched on. I had to put it um, kind of in there as an honorable mention because I think I was very tepid on it um, when we left our screening at TIFF. I think mostly because it was day number one and a three-hour movie on day number one. Um, and, it was, just like, and it was our third or fourth film at that point. Too. Yeah, and I just felt like it... Uh, my initial impression was like it didn't earn its length, but the more I thought about it, the more it kind of uh, had this burning sensation right. <laughs> in me. And no, I think Stephen Yun is fantastic, and um, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, a little bit later. Uh, so those are my honorable mentions. Nice. All right, man. You want to get started at uh, number 15? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so my number 15 is Widows, directed by Steve McQueen and written by Gillian Flynn. Um one of the best studio movies of the year and the reason for that is because McQueen and Flynn are able to balance both um, a slick commercial uh, bank robbing heist movie and blend that with a socially conscious uh, film that depicts race, religion, culture, uh, politics and directs it to the audience in a way that isn't you know, spoon feeding you what it sh- what it's telling you, but it, at the same time, it is sneaking its uh, themes and ideas in there. And one sequence that everybody is talking about, or you know, having seen the film, we're talking about uh, was the the car sequence where you see Colin Farrell get into a car and leave a women of colors uh, color uh, kind of um, working. Um, it's called M Wow, yeah, yeah. and and goes to his you know Caucasian palatial uh, uh, gated, gated neighborhood, yeah. and within this distance, you get the summary of Chicago and the two worlds in which Chicago has been divided, and the movie is very much looking at that and the different levels that these characters all exist in the world that it's built on. And it's a very dense undertaking. This could have been, you know, a remake of the original British miniseries and turned into an American miniseries. But instead, McQueen um, decides to make this two-hour opus and cram everything in, but at the same time gives everybody their moment. Viola Davis and Elizabeth Debicki particularly stand out. And the cinematography is great. Um, the editing is sharp and well-paced and it's thrilling and it's not just a heist movie and that is a feat into itself and one of the best movies of the year and it's just unfortunate that uh, more people didn't go to see it. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I don't know whether we've talked about that I think at length a little bit of whether where the marketing went wrong but I, I have it coming up on my list um, in in a few picks and yeah man, I'm completely with you. Like it, it, I keep joking that it's an elevated popcorn movie or an elevated action movie but I feel like if you go in just wanting kind of uh, a 
just fun action flick, you'll get that. If you want to go in and get a little bit more and pay attention to that kind of um, not even subtle, but just like kind of that art house kind of tendency that that McQueen kind of puts in there, and he's actually commenting on real world issues and things that are happening, and you can also get that whole element which you just um, put very very well. And yeah, man, I I just think it's it's enjoyable and thought provoking, and with great performances, and it's surprising and it's exciting, and uh, yeah, I think Widows is is absolutely fantastic. So I'm yeah. With you. Uh, my number 15 is uh, Adam McKay's Vice. Um, Which we reviewed on the show. You can listen we did. to our... So I won't go too, too much into that. If you guys want to check out our uh, lengthy... Uh, not even lengthy, but our full opinions, uh, head over to Untitled Movie Reviews where we just reviewed it last... Or it just actually went up. Um on yeah, Monday. this week, yeah. Yeah, so that's available right now. Recording, yeah. yeah, that's available now, so you guys can listen to that. Uh, yeah, I, um, I... Again, you go listen to our review. I, I do think... Adam McKay's style will be off-putting to a lot of people, and I have seen that kind of pop up on Twitter today right. uh, and on Monday when the embargo lifted. Um, but you know what? I think he's becoming, I think, one of the most interesting filmmakers working, moving from things from like Anchorman and Step Brothers to now doing um, kind of awards movies, which is weird. But he has his own style that I I really dig, uh, that subversive kind of like uh, twist the genre on its head for this uh kind of a political biopic kind of thing that he's doing and and um uh yeah i think he it's funny and interesting and uh it's exactly what i'm looking for when uh i want to watch a a biopic i don't want a paint by numbers kind of like here's their wikipedia page i want something that at least does something interesting or weird right yeah and it's also again like he's very passionate about this subject matter and it's very much something he is angry and i find when a filmmaker has that anger or that passion deep inside them that it's motivating them it may turn out to be a little bit you know rough around the edges as i mentioned with sorry to bother you but at the same time you're going to get a film that has uh that that doesn't feel like it's an assembly line awards movie this this is very much an idiosyncratic character piece that is shakespearean in nature and tragic in a way and the tragedy is that america befell the cheneys and the cheneys became empowered um by the system and how the government particularly um allowed these people to you know bend that power for their own uh needs and manipulate people and exploit those powers yeah uh, your number 14. My number 14 is uh, the only documentary I have on the list, and it's Won't You Be My Neighbor, uh, about Fred Rogers. And the reason why I have it on, on the list, it's a very traditional uh, documentary, archival footage, talking heads, animation. But at its core, what it teaches you um, is that you can be a good person, that you know you can look at somebody and say, hey, there's... There has to be an ulterior motive or there's something, you know, cynical in your mind thinking like, well, there has to be something wrong with him. Uh, you know, Fred Rogers particularly, but anybody nice to guy. be such a nice guy. But this person was and he didn't, you know, he was religious, but he didn't use religion to um, 
teach children to be, you know, you know, you have to believe in God and what have you. But he used it to say, hey, you know, like, I want these kids to grow up in a world where they feel safe and they feel loved and cared about. And, you know, this is, a, you know, TV is the tool in which I can teach them. And he used his teachings and values to help other children of all races, religions, ethnicities, and said, you know what? you are special and you are someone and those kids that grew up on mr rogers i think you know most people did or yeah if, you, if you're from canada uh uh mr dress up was kind of yeah, the, the yeah. canadian equivalent um you know i think we were all better people for it and just it's a nice reminder that you know in a world filled uh you know with gloom and um you know, uh, deviancy and and turmoil that there are people out there like that that want to help others. And Mr. Rogers is a perfect example of what anybody should want to model themselves after. Mm -hmm. uh, it's definitely one that I, I need to watch and has been queued up on my iTunes for the longest time. It's just, uh, and I loved Mr. Rogers as a kid and, and, and Mr. Dress Up. And, right. uh, um, the trailer even got me. I remember for that movie. I just haven't, you know, I'm not I, like, it's not that I'm not a documentary guy. It's just not what I gravitate towards when I'm choosing a movie to watch at home or something like that. But, um, yeah, uh, won't you be my neighbor is definitely up there. And I, I, I need to, uh, watch that ASAP. I'd love to squeeze it in before the end of the year, but I, I wasn't able to watch it before this, uh, we recorded this episode. Yeah. And, and again, I also have to give credit to Morgan Neville on it as well, because he doesn't shy away from, from Fred Rogers's own insecurities as well. And we get a better sense of who he was as a person and, and at his heart, at his core, he was who he said he was. He talked the talk and walked the walk. And he also stuck up for public access television, which, you know, in my uh, heart is, is, is such a wonderful thing because I mean, that's, you know, where I am career wise. And, and so, you know, seeing something like that and, and saying that, Hey, you know, this is an important place to teach people and educate people on, you know, subjects like film and, and, and television is, is an amazing thing. So yeah, I definitely recommend it if you haven't seen yeah, it yet. For sure. Uh, my number 14, uh, a little controversy uh, recently, but uh, is uh, Green Book. Right. Um, we've talked about this uh, at length, both on our TIFF episode, but we not so much recently, but um, uh, recently Don Shirley's uh, family has come out and kind of said, hey, this isn't really an accurate portrayal of Don in this movie, and there's been a little bit of backlash towards the movie. Um, but we've talked about it where I'm like, I... I totally understand the criticisms of the movie and Mahershala Ali has even apologized to them and, and talked to them privately about it. And he said, Hey, like, listen, like, I still think this to me, it's like, it's a, when you get to these movies about true events, right? Like or inspired by a true friendship or based on a true story. You got to remember that it is, I'm not saying that this is okay, but it, you got to remember that it's based or inspired on where these are still characters in a movie. And we've talked about this, I think on a recent podcast. And I think what the movie represents or is trying to represent, um, whether that be their friendship or what, what the message of the movie is, I still think is quite strong and quite charming. And, and it's um, also playing in the genre, right? Like it's, it's, it's a, it's a road trip buddy comedy. Yeah. So it's taking the, you know, quote unquote, 
a true story or true friendship and bending it to the narrative, which is being written by three people, one of which is the son of Tony Lip. Um, But also at the same time, it's, you know, playing within the tropes of the genre. So you got to remember, it is a fictional film that they're still making, even if it's inspired by things that actually happened. Yeah, right? historical so, fiction. Yeah, you got to. Yeah, exactly. And you got to remember that this is a character that they're playing, and that um, again, they're taking traits and they're taking maybe moments, but um, and I think it ultimately is quite charming, and and their friendship is what really carries, and those two performances is it are is what carries that movie. And, um, I don't know. I was completely won over by it. And I keep saying that, like, I wasn't expecting a lot of these movies to be good, but like, what was the this is, people's choice? Yeah. Too. And it was one of those movies that just, I, I don't think we even had on our radar as we're like, we meticulously build our schedules, uh, for this festival. And when we heard a Peter fairly, kind of uh oscar Beatty movie we're like what do you why would anyone want this right. and then um but we liked who was involved and then as the festival went on we heard it was um quite good and and i i still do believe that i i really do enjoy the movie i think it's uh well made but i would totally understand if um i was a member of his family and didn't think that it was an accurate portrayal of him of why they would be upset and why people would maybe um uh turn on this movie yeah those criticisms are absolutely valid and and again like you know you don't want to take the movie on face value value that this is you know a historical representation of these two people's lives but this is more so um again a piece of narrative fiction using historical context as its backdrop to tell a story particularly in the uh, deep south in the 1960s so part of it again is you have to look at the screenplay and the narrative and how it's kind of bending the will of the script to serve a narrative that is of the genre that it's playing in which is again the road trip buddy comedy movie and it succeeds i think in both of those particularly with the chemistry of both Viggo Mortensen and Mahershala Ali who are outstanding in the film and i don't think that's necessarily what like well any movie should be able to do whatever it wants and it just because it's a movie and it's it's historical fiction as you as you you mentioned is okay um i still don't know how that works when it comes to the rights of a, a, a actual person and things like that. Like if his family didn't want this portrayal of him, I'm like, I'm, I'm not sure how, um, well, he, how that he works even stipulated like, that when he was still alive, that, um, that this story, he would only allow to get made, uh, when after he had passed away. Right. So then maybe that's why they were allowed to do it without the family's involvement or I'm not sure, but we don't need to get into all of that. But like, um, I still think it's a, it's a fun buddy road trip movie that um with a really good pair of leads that um i i think their chemistry is fantastic and i think both performances are very very good and it's uh thoroughly entertaining yeah um your number 13 my number 13 is wes anderson's isle of dogs um a stop motion animation uh feast for thine eyes if you will um what i love about wes anderson is i mean his deadpan humor but when he is making a movie nowadays even in live action the films usually tend to be cartoonish or or lend themselves to um kind of a 
over-the-top quality that isn't existing in the world that we're familiar with. I mean, you look at early on in his career, Bottle Rocket and Rushmore are somewhat more grounded, but by the time he got to Fantastic Mr. Fox, this was when he was making, you know, cartoons. And even Grand Budapest Hotel and Moonrise Kingdom reflect that, like, it's it's a live-action animated movie. And with Isle of Dogs, him going back to stop-motion animation, basically solo, because he had help from uh, Henry Selleck before, who uh, is a stop-motion animator, uh, who worked on Coraline and The Nightmare Before Christmas, makes a movie that is whimsical, but also very melancholy, charming but bittersweet and you know when when you boil it down it's a story about a boy and his dog and what this boy is willing to do and where he is willing to go to save his uh four-legged companion and uh brian cranston is great in this movie uh a lot of uh wes anderson regulars are also fantastic from edward norton to jeff goldblum to bob balaban bill murray of course um and i think the thing that really sticks out to me that doesn't get a lot of credit but should is the production design i think the production design of this movie is meticulous and you know we 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 talk about great sets for actors well these are great sets for miniature actors that are these incredibly designed and meticulously made um uh, puppets and it's just amazing to watch and and also like green book i mean it, it ran into some controversy with cultural appropriation cultural appropriation but also uh whitewashing with yeah. the voices particularly um greta gerwig but also the dogs themselves because if the dogs are speaking why aren't they speaking in, in, but I, in japanese see for me i think west does a he adds that as part of I don't, i'm not trying to defend it but right. like it's part of the style of the movie right like there's all those kind of title cards at the beginning that kind of explain to you how the movie is going to be presented where i feel like i get why well it's being like, interpreted in multiple languages yeah. so you know they're talking so it says the dogs are barking but it's yeah. been translated to english, english because exactly. it's a english movie like he's still presenting it to you and then the lead way, can right? only hear the barking because they're dogs right and so and then with with the subtitles for the other characters it's because they're speaking japanese exactly right the japanese people in the movie are speaking japanese greta gerwig is a um, foreign exchange uh, student exactly yeah. and there is a translator with um uh, francis mcdormand who does translate a lot of the japanese dialogue which those are kind of the quirky kind of things that i love from west so like i feel like a lot of that stuff is just i like i don't think there's anything malevolent about i get more of the i think he's paying tribute to the culture and the history and the and japanese cinema i think there's a a love and respect for the film but i but i also understand the counterpoint or the counter argument too i i more so i think maybe the the cultural appropriation angle of being like is is he allowed to kind of not is he allowed, but should he be doing this, like right. telling this story, and like why does it need to take place in in Japan, and and um, why couldn't it have taken place in France? Because right. West seems to have a fetish for yeah. for France in particular, and and he always is bringing you know uh, that culture into his movies. So, but I get if he admires that style, and that's what he's trying to pay. Tr- tribute to yeah it's, like a it's Kira a, Kurosawa it's a tricky it's a tricky thing right yeah. but um you'll hear I, I mean it's gonna come up uh on my list soon too I you know I absolutely love it 
Um, where are we now? I'm on to my 12. Is that it? Yeah. No, 13. 13. Uh, widows. Uh, so something, uh, you just, uh, we talked about extensively. Um, so I don't need to go too much into it, but again, um, yeah, Steve McQueen making a, um, a studio film. Um, it's just, it's crazy to me how, how well it worked and how exciting it is. And, um, and it's just a, a really, really good movie that you should check out if you haven't yet. I don't need to go into it anymore. Yeah, and it's always just wonderful to to know that the filmmaker's voice comes through the movie, that he doesn't get lost within the spectacle mm-hmm. or the big budget of the film. Like, there are shots and sequences that are just completely his trademark signature and as soon as you see you know a, an extreme close-up of an eye opening in the morning or the way that some of the editing works you know you're in a steve mcqueen movie right and i give i mean it's a shame that they're going away but i give fox credit because i feel like they took some big risks when it comes to big hollywood like studio movies um, right. when it came to r-rated stuff and like even those widows was a failure and a cure for wellness was yeah. a failure and like weird r-rated adult dramas or or um things like that like uh, not that this was weird but it was still sort of risky right you're taking an art house director and and um yeah it's just it's a shame that those movies haven't succeeded but i i give fox credit for kind of going um there aren't a lot of r-rated adult dramas that i think on that scale right um and they've kind of greenlit a bunch of those and i don't think we'll get those once uh it goes over to disney but we'll see they'll be fewer and far between for sure i think disney just doesn't take as many risks right they're very meticulous in what they greenlight. yeah right now if the movie was successful maybe they would have right. but because the film flopped well it's... we've seen it with alien we've seen it with a cure for wellness we've seen it like fox yeah. has taken these risks with these r-rated even a good day to die hard i mean not the great like a couple of those movies are very bad. A couple are good. Yeah, but the um, non-franchise ones are even harder to do because right. they don't have any base to go from or start from. Where, like an original property. Yeah, yeah, like where even A Cure for Wellness, I'm still surprised that that thing got made. <laughs> right, same. It baffles me. Uh, number 12. So my number 12 is Paddington 2. Oh, nice. And, uh, that know, just ma- like was off my honorable mentions. Like I, lo- I love Paddington 2. Yeah, I mean, like it was one of those movies where I also probably could have omitted it, but I needed to put put it on here because it came out in january um it, it opened in europe uh in in december the weird but thing it, about the paddington movies is they're sort of the year before if you live in the uk yeah but, but there is but there are the count this 2018 for north america and getting a movie that wonderful that sweet that um just you you just want to just hug this movie um you you realize that everything is going to be okay that, you know, you're going to make it through the year. That, you know, in the midst of all the crap that the studio is dumping on you, that there is Paddington 2 to, you know, get you through the night, to get you through the year. And with Ben Wishaw's uh, voice performance in this movie and um, the, that final sequence of the film or the final shot of the movie, it just is so perfect, so wonderful. Um I don't really know what else to say other than it's just it is one of the most nicest experiences at the theater uh, that I had this year. And again, it just carries through and you kind of just keep it, you know, in your heart and just remember that these characters in this story, um, 
can be told in a very non-cynical fashion. And I feel like it would make a great double bill with uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor. Yeah, I um I fell in love with both Paddington movies. I think they're both fantastic. And um, yeah, man, I'm, I'm totally with you. Just completely, thoroughly lovable, like from start to finish. And just... Uh, and you... this is how you rip off Wes Anderson. That's too. what I was going to say. I'm like, <laughs> it is the perfect Wes Anderson, not ri- like rip off, but like... Um, I, I totally thought of that throughout both movies and I, um, who's the director again? Um, um, the director, I'm I'm forgetting his name. Yeah. Cause um, he's one. And you know what I feel? Uh, Paul King. Paul King. Yeah. Um, who again, like he, he's not getting a lot of credit. He's kind of forgotten name wise, but, um, there are sequences in both of the Paddington movies. I mean, there's a, a jailhouse musical in Paddington too, and a storybook pop-up that are incredible. And I love the I, daddy cool segment. Too. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't like Hugh Grant, but I thought he was phenomenal yeah. and perfectly cast in a role of the fading actor. That's trying to make a bit of a right, comeback. That's great, and yeah. you know, like it, again, like it's oozing with style in yeah, the right ways. But style. Like, but again, it's also very charming and sweet natured and a great movie for all ages like mm-hmm. it really is a film that you could show anybody and i think they'll take away something from it it's mm-hmm. not just like it's not only for, for kids. kids no yeah, yeah i'm uh, 100% with you on that uh my number 12 is bad times at the el royale uh the drew goddard film that um uh single location film uh thriller i um chapter based just kind of all it checks off all those boxes that uh i absolutely kind of um love and i just think incredibly well executed um with some fantastic fantastic performances um uh, by Jeff Bridges and uh, Cynthia, Cynthia Revo, uh, who's Revo. also amazing in Widows. Yes, um, uh, there's an amazing segment in this movie that we always talk about with the sound editing of um, uh, timing her uh, musical performance to kind of hiding um, what Jeff Bridges is doing in a scene, and uh, and then cutting to Dakota yeah. uh, Johnson reacting behind a uh, glass window. Um, it's it's one of those films that I think. It it, it it also another Fox film that bombed horribly. Right. Uh, See, there's another R rated like that was it, lengthy as well. I mean, this yeah. was this was about two hours and twenty minutes or or longer, and I think tonally it was kind of all over the place because you know the consensus was that this was a a Quentin Tarantino knockoff, and yeah, partly it is true. I, I mean, I always, he is I, using that format. Yeah, it, and I I I I said that when we walked into the movie. I said I'm like I I. I thought Diet Tarantino was kind of an insult, so I said Tarantino Zero, like Coke Zero. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, um, I, I, I do still feel like it is Reservoir Dogs, or it is, like, a, one of those single location, but chapter-based, kind of, uh, even some Pulp Fiction stuff in there of telling the kind of side stories and the back and stories. And non fashion, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um... And Tarantino didn't invent that either, but I mean... No, Jean-Luc Godard yeah. <laughs> was his influence yeah. on that, so... Yeah, and I don't know, man, like, I just thought it was in- incredibly well-executed and well-directed, and um, I was genuinely surprised throughout the movie, and... Um, and it's funny, like, yeah, that's the it thing is, that yeah. I love about um, Drew Goddard's sense of humor, is that it's bleak, but also yet you still laugh at certain things that you probably shouldn't be laughing at. And I think he is one of the great kind of uh, satirists of, of our time, especially when you look at this and Cabin in the Woods and he's deconstructing 
genres and sort of looking at what makes them work and what doesn't make them work and sort of rebuilds them up and turns them into something else. And Bad Times at the El Royale, I think, was, you know, unfortunately in a situation where he reconstructed the chapter-based storytelling in a way that people felt that maybe they had seen it before a hundred times or that they were um, uninterested in the mystery of it. But I thought the mystery was great. And I, I thought each, the voyeurism is amazing. Yeah. And I thought like, that's what I mean. Like I loved looking into each character's life. Like I thought each character was interesting enough where each one told a, a really cool story that eventually intersected at the end. And then that's exactly what I wanted out of that movie. And I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. And the historical context as well. Right. Talking yeah. about that as the backdrop in the 1960s and sort of how that plays a very pivotal role in each character, you know, arriving. And again, like this could be a great mini series, you know, like I would, I would love to see when this. I had some time to breathe. And... Yeah. Like even maybe one day get turned into a mini series. Like I could see this down the line happening as a, like, a, a four four or five part episode that's you know 90 minutes or something like that. yeah for sure um your number 11 my number 11 is the sisters brothers um a, interesting a interesting film that i felt again nobody went to go and see yet it had four of the best actors working today at the top of their games and and specifically john c Riley, um who I mean, star of the upcoming Holmes and Watson. <laughs> well, well, that's the thing. I mean, he's now become the guy who does comedies or is is paired up with somebody in a comedic duo, whether it be Will Ferrell in Step Brothers or, you know, Sherlock uh, and, and Holmes. And Talladega Nights. Talladega Nights. <laughs> um, Sherlock and Watson, pardon me. But he's also a wonderful character actor who worked with you know people like Paul Thomas Anderson, Martin Scorsese, he was a theater actor and uh, even before that and and so I think we take him for granted and his sort of relationship with Joaquin Phoenix's character in this movie they play brothers who are bounty hunters set on the trail to catch Riz Ahmed's chemist um and their point guard is uh, Jake Gyllenhaal so you have this wonderful kind of balance of four personalities kind of playing off one another obviously it's sort of two on two but when the four come together I think it's really both comedically fascinating but also kind of sad and tragic because they all share things in similar uh, regards to tragic upbringings um, abuse uh, and sort of discrimination in one way or another and it's just really wonderful to see a western take the time to be also a fascinating character study and it's just gorgeous to look at like it is a beautiful looking movie that first sequence um, when you see a shot a ball of fire i don't want to tell you say what it is because i feel it's part of the reveal but when you see this ball of fire kind of rolling past this barn it is so surreal and so vivid that you just can't forget it and and again it's slow it takes its time but if you give yourself over to the genre I think you'll have a really good time with it. And Jack Odiard, I think, makes some really interesting choices in terms of how he shoots um, the typical uh, tropes in in the Western. Yeah, I um, I think I need to give it a rewatch because I did see it in the middle of a very long festival at TIFF. Right. Um, and I fell asleep through a good chunk of it. And uh, 
uh, enjoyed what I saw, but I wasn't really enthralled by it. Um, uh, vicious at points and, and gruesome, uh, but also, uh, yeah, like you said, it's led by those four great actors and I do really love all four of those guys. And I thought they were great in the film. I just, um, I enjoyed it. I just, I think I need to, uh, watch it again before I really kind of give my opinion on it. Um, so for me, uh, what we're at 11 now. Yeah. Yes. Uh, black Panther for me. So a movie, I think you put in your honorable mentions. Yes. Correct. Yeah. Um, I, I, again, like this, I'm, I'm surprised that this was this year. I'm surprised I have three Marvel movies in my top 11. Um, black Panther was one of those movies that I think we were excited for, but, uh, well, especially kinda, because of Ryan Coogler. Yeah, I think that's why, right? Because I don't. Creed. Yeah, I, I loved Creed. Creed was in my top five of that year, and and um, I and we saw a scene at that Disney preview. But I still, Black Panther was never a ca- character that I necessarily connected with. But uh, Coogler and and Michael B. Jordan and even Chadwick Boseman, like everyone is 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 amazing in that movie and it's just a a a great superhero film from start to finish and i think coogler really kind of i don't want to say he elevates the material but he's so good at what he does that i think um it really really helped uh, make that movie what it was and we've talked about marvel kind of getting better and better at choosing great directors and letting them have time to actually make the, the movie, movie that them, they want yeah, to make and, not and make it their make own the movie right by committee yeah and, and and again i have a movie that's essentially made by committee that's going to be in my top three two very different films and one i enjoyed a bit more than the other after i thought about it by the end of the year but um uh, just uh for a movie that's both world building in this bigger universe but still very much its own thing and um making Wakanda a beautiful, interesting place that you want to spend more time in, uh, having a villain like Michael B. Jordan that's actually someone you go, well, fuck, like, is... I'm kind of, like, I kind of get where he's coming His from. His motivations like, make yeah. sense. It's not about world domination. It's about acceptance. Yeah, it's a little bit more of a personal story and a, a bit on a smaller scale. And um, I think it's... And you'll see by the end of this year, I really think it's going to go far and it, it might be the most acclaimed... I mean, it's weird. We're going to have two movies this year that i think are going to be two of the most acclaimed superhero films of all time um looking back on it i mean at least in recent memory or uh, of all time right now who knows what the future is going to bring but um yeah i I absolutely love black panther and i think it's it's uh, an excellent superhero movie but then also just an excellent kind of um just an excellent movie and Rachel Morrison's cinematography is is incredible as yep. well in that movie. There's some images in that film that are just so beautiful oh my to God, look like at compared whole... to a lot of the older Marvel movies that yeah. you can tell in like the first two phases where it they was all like, kind of look the same. Yeah, they have like... that televisual style where this is just so gorgeous and, and colorful oh, yeah. and like yeah, the score is amazing and um, yeah, Ludwig um, Gordonson who also did Creed and, and it's just oozing with style too, which uh, like I I think Coogler brought to that with the soundtrack and the score and yeah you mentioned like the colors and when they go to the the ancestral plane and those beautiful colors in the like the purples uh, yeah, and the blues yeah. and it almost has like a, a an auroras borealis yeah. kind of look to it um and and again it's it's otherworldly as well and and it feels perfectly in line with a superhero movie but it's something that a superhero film hasn't brought to the table yet agreed 
Uh, your number, are you on 11 or 10? 10. 10. 10. Oh, top 10, baby. Top 10. So my number 10 is another Joaquin Phoenix uh, starring movie, uh, You Were Never Really Here, um, directed by Lynn Ramsey. And like the Sisters Brothers, um, she takes the revenge genre and twists it. And so the way that she plays with violence and threatening um, forces sort of doing horrible things particularly men attacking women or men sexually assaulting women you never see the act but you see either before or after and the horrors that result in that because you're building up in your mind what is going on and it's some of the most i think she's the best at that she's like it's psychological torment and she knows how to build suspense brilliantly and it is sparse and um exacting and joaquin phoenix's performance is unpredictable and traumatic and traumatizing and also just sad because you 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 learn of his own backstory and his um life is growing up with an abusive uh, patriarch and sort of the one connection he really has left is his mother until he's hired onto this case that brings him to sort of save this young girl in a very kind of almost taxi driver-esque uh way who he rescues from a brothel but is kind of um undermined and betrayed by the people that hired him or at least framed and so Again, like this story could have just been a generic revenge movie, but through the gaze that is Lynn Ramsey, she turns it into something else entirely. Is it easy to watch? No. But at the same time, I think it's equally rewarding. And Johnny Greenwood's score is just so it's unsettling. It's unsettling, it's creepy, but it's also just completely in just gripping. Like you can't not think of it without like a pulsating beat in the back of your head and i just think it's one of those movies that you know was released early in the year it played at the Cannes film festival the year before when joaquin phoenix won best actor um people should check it out and again if you love sort of revenge movies from the 60s and 70s i think this is right up uh, people's alley yeah i'm uh, i didn't quite have it on my honorable mentions, but I did really, really enjoy You Were Never Really Here. It's yeah. hammer time. <laughs> I hate you. Um, my number 10, uh, Jeremy Saulnier's Hold the Dark. Uh, I'm a huge uh, Saulnier fan. I think this is a uh, fantastic, slow burn, creepy um, thriller with bursts of action and violence that are shocking and, um, absolutely insane at times. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say about the movie. I don't need to go too far into it, but like, I just, I love Saulnier's style and I love that his commitment and it's long and it's, uh, it's dragging and you really have to commit to it and buy into it. But, um, if you do, I think it's really rewarding by the end and in, in a fucked up kind of like, well, it's unpredictable yeah. too because you're thinking, Oh, is this some sort of supernatural movie or is this sort of a, a, a neo uh, noir Western or is this, you know, it keeps changing and it keeps saying, hey i'm one thing but i'm actually another and again it is a slow burn but um that slowness kind of is is a curiosity and it creeps into your 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 mind as you're thinking 
how is this going to play out? Like, what what is the end game for this? And, mm-hmm. and you're never really sure. And that, I think that's one reason why I loved it, right? It's just like when those bursts of action come or when something crazy and creepy and weird and when characters act in a way that you're not expecting or... Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I, I just really, 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 really enjoyed the shit out of it. I thought um, Jeffrey Wright was, uh, was awesome. And to have Scott, an older protagonist um, yeah. sort of... His perspective on on the situation, you know, being a uh, animal behaviorist and and sort of focusing on wolves and and being a writer and being brought into a situation that um, and an environment that he's unfamiliar with because this is the frigid frigid Alaskan uh, wilderness that he that he comes into and to be brought into a uh, murder mystery crime thriller is fascinating to see and then alexander skarsgård who is frightening in this in this movie as well um but i i do feel that like people that loved green room might be disappointed a little bit just because this is a much more um deliberately paced film compared to green room where i think green room once you get into the main location the single location it really it's amps balls to the up wall. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the adrenaline. Where this is, I think this methodical. is more like Blue Ruin. Yeah. in the point where if if you guys if you haven't checked out Blue Ruin, you 100 percent should. But Blue Ruin is also, I think, very meticulous in its pacing as well. And I think this is even more so probably than Blue Ruin. Um, but yeah, man, it's on Netflix. So I mean, I would suggest you guys check it out. And again, Netflix making those movies that they dare you to finish. But right. um, um, I, I really kind of, I guess they're taking or that kinda, no one else would dare to make. That's what I mean. I give Netflix credit for being that one company that's like, yeah, you know what, you want to make this? Here's You're, twenty million dollars and do whatever the hell you want. Yeah. <laughs> like it's okay. Make it three hours. Make it an hour and a half. Make it very slow. Make it in spanish it doesn't matter right, right. like it, it they'll let you do what you want because they make so much and they make something for everyone right so um yeah i i think hold the dark's excellent go check it out on netflix um so my number nine is if beale street could talk from barry jenkins uh his follow-up to moonlight um i think this is a very different movie in terms of uh, what it's talking about but at its core it's a love story and it's a love story about two young uh, an african-american couple in love in harlem in the 1970s and how they are torn apart by injustice and it is so unbelievably heartbreaking and harrowing to see how the family kind of cope with that situation and try their best to find a way to end it or resolve it but you know within the bureaucratic system of that time period in a very uh caucasian and racist system uh whether it be the police or court system it's harder for them uh to really get through to anybody but yet they still strive to do their best and i think the performances by stefan james who's from scarborough uh is, Shout out to is, scarborough. Yeah, is 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 great uh regina uh, uh king who's been scooping up a lot of uh, awards consideration recently um as uh kiki uh lane's mother in the film is wonderful coleman domingo and in the most pivotal scene in the movie brian tyree henry kind of sums up beautifully the horrors and the tragedy of a life that has been forever changed by uh, police brutality and um, unfair justice, and you just you just 
feel this movie vibrantly um, in the way that Barry Jenkins loves cinema. I mean, everything from Wong Kar Wai to Jonathan Demme is very much uh, a part of this film, and it just feels very tender and real. And James Laxton's cinematography is beautiful, and Nicholas... Uh, brittle score is incredible too. i think the score is what stands out for me um again not i i i beale street was again another one of those movies in the middle of the fest that i just didn't hit the right spots for me um i still thought it was good i just wasn't kind of in love with it like right. other people were um but i also like the way that it handles interweaving um, two timelines that aren't that far apart. Yeah. The way that we have the present situation of the, the conflict of, of the film, which is the, the two lovers being separated and uh, Stefan James's character, Fozzie, being sentenced to a crime or sent to jail for a crime he didn't commit. And then sort of the reflection or the past being this really lovely um, romance between the two. Right. Yeah, I do think, I, again... Another movie I want to give another shot to, and I know I'm saying that when I don't agree with you on right, the opinion, right. but um, again, I don't think it's fair sometimes in the middle of seeing 40-some movies at the festival to kind of be like, eh, I'm fine with it, but I don't love it, and then uh, without giving it another chance. Right, so, and Barry um, Jenkins deserves that He chance. does, because I love Moonlight. Like, yeah. I love, 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 love Moonlight, so... Um, he definitely deserves that chance. So it's one that I, I, I definitely need to rewatch when it comes out on, on 4k. Cause I do think it is beautiful. I didn't love some of the melodrama stuff with the family and like, I couldn't get into it. it whether that was the mood I was in, I just never bought into it. And I thought it was a little bit overacted. Right. Um, that was just me. And, uh, it's not that I didn't like their love story or anything like that. It just never got its hooks in me. And like, um, I can't argue that it was art artfully made and that the score is is amazing and it's beautiful and and things like that and i think barry jenkins is an excellent excellent filmmaker it just never really uh worked for me but that doesn't mean i didn't think it was good like i still was like oh yeah it's good i just don't love it like you guys do uh for me my number nine is bo burnham's eighth grade uh that's my number eight. So we is it? Just, we might as well talk about yeah. it at the same time. Um, yeah, man, I, I I absolutely love this movie. I think Bo Burnham is uh, a genius. Um, if you guys haven't checked out his YouTube stuff or his comedy specials on Netflix, um, or, his vines. Or, or any yeah, or his vines or anything he's done, I feel like he he reinvents himself every kind of few years when he wants to tackle a new medium, which I think is really really interesting. And I just think he has such a unique. Um, and funny and um uh look of the world and 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 i think he he's just so so smart and i think that all comes out in this movie and uh with an amazing uh performance by um elsie fisher and um the movie is funny and cringy and heartwarming and um it's relatable even if you didn't if you went to, if you were in eighth grade, however many years ago we were in eighth grade, like this is a contemporary movie, but you'll find a little bit of your childhood or your eighth grade experience in this movie. And I feel like, um, it'll make you feel nostalgic, but it'll also make you laugh and you'll love the relationship between her and her dad. And, um, and, and if you've ever been a little bit of an outcast or, or something like that, you'll find yourself in this movie. And, um, 
I loved every minute of it. Yeah, and to see someone who is Elsie uh, Fisher's character, who is very much an introvert, sort of putting herself out there in these YouTube videos and giving, you know, uh, self-help advice tips and nobody returning back or, or, or viewing these things. Almost it, like two guys who love movies that are introverts that make a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You just, you do it for yourself. But at the same time, what I, I what I love about this is that there are some scenes in this in this movie that are also anxiety inducing and almost like a horror movie i mean i told when i interviewed bo burnham i told him that there's a scene in this movie that's just as thrilling and harrowing and horrifying to watch as hereditary and you know the scene i'm talking about when i say it. which one sorry uh, the backseat of the car um, uh when when they're driving uh her home right when she's hanging out with the high schoolers yeah and the guy yeah, takes, yeah 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 yes, to me that yes, is yeah i was yes. just like holding my breath, cringing, but also... It's uncomfortable, it, it felt like but it's... like a horror movie scene yeah. because I didn't want anything bad to happen to her. And the when when that plays the way it does, which it, it does perfectly, you know it's not only just effective, but you care about the character. And I hope that um, he does return to Kayla eventually down the line like in the way that a richard linklater movie would be like the did he mention movie. he thought about yeah well that? i talked that was yeah. the last thing i asked him he said like would i asked him would you want to revisit her you know in in, in the end of high school because you could just like call that. it whatever grade yeah or, and he yeah. said yes that he would at some point like to see where she's at and who she's become as, as as a person so i could see this as an ongoing series and and again i think and something coming from a first-time filmmaker too is crazy yeah i mean it's and he's like, so self-assured and confident and it just drives me nuts that this this kid who's <laughs> he's our age yeah well, well he's a little, he's a little younger, younger he's right? like 26 i yeah, think okay um and very tall um it is just makes this movie the first time around and gets it so right. Like even even, but that's what he's been doing. Right. Like if you look at his comedy. Too, but even even like... the actual screens, like it's actual computer screens. It's not superimposed after the yeah. fact. Like just those little details are so important. And even again, the balance between his self-deprivating humor to the horrors of being. Uh, a, an awkward adolescent he perfectly gets those he, he gets them so right it's just an amazing piece of filmmaking that will remind you of i'm glad to be out of eighth grade <laughs> right yeah i'm a thousand percent and i cannot wait to see what he does next like i absolutely cannot wait um here's another movie that i i'm sure we'll be talking about more um soon on your list but my number eight is paul schrader's first reformed blessed um a movie that i have not seen in a year and a half but it still made my top 10 of the year list because the only time i've watched this movie was september of 2016 right 17, 17. sorry 2017 and it was one of the it was the um, last movie we saw that year yeah. and then uh, at the festival, we yeah. Got Chipotle afterwards. <laughs> yeah, we did. Um, dude, I yeah, it stuck with me. Um, I think it's a testament to um, this movie. Praise. That, um, that s- even though I saw it so long ago, I'm still thinking about it and I do really want to revisit it. It's just a tough movie, I think, to maybe uh, uh, revisit. Although I think you said you've seen it three or four times. I've seen it but... three times. Yeah. I-, I mean, I saw it the first time at TIFF and then uh, once when it was released theatrically again to re 
refresh myself with it and then uh when it was released on blu-ray and for me um i mean it's my i'll, I'll just say now yeah and, we can so start if it's we my have number overlap. it's my number three and so uh for me it's uh ethan hawk's finest hour as an actor and i think that his performance is on par with robert de niro's work in taxi driver which paul schrader also wrote um schrader understands the uh misanthropic character being locked away plotting what he's going to do to change the way things are because somebody has to do something as that uh gif is going out there but i think what hawk is able to do so brilliantly that we haven't seen before from him is internalize his rage and insecurity and fear of a world that is changing and the church having less power and less say over you know big corporations polluting the earth and globalization uh, changing the way that we are, are, are running our lives. So it, it's, it's, it's got big ideas and big themes, and it also is very small. But I think it also is talking about the film industry in general because you have, you know, Ethan Hawke's character who is in this small church that is celebrating an anniversary, a very important anniversary that is the old way of doing things and then you have cedric the entertainer and a really <laughs> wonderful performance yeah. cedric kyle's uh build a cedric kyle's um in this mega church this commercial church so it's the blockbuster versus the indie film in, in a way and even though paul schrader can say some really stupid stuff and i think part of it is he wants to be a martyr um, the man is a great writer and the character and the writing and the voiceovers in, in the film are so hypnotic. Yeah. Um, and Pepto-Bismol, you'll never look at it the same way. Or yeah. rye or, or whiskey. Whiskey and Pepto uh, and barbed wire. Um, that movie takes a turn. If like, what's amazing Talk about, about a that, film that you like, could not predict. Yeah, I know, especially because we didn't really know much about it going and in. And it's kind of we funny saw too. we saw it in the best way possible. Where we were like, oh, Paul Schrader made a new movie, and then this is the year after Dog Eat Dog or whatever. Yeah, and, like, well, he and, he hasn't um, made a really good like this is this was his first really good film in like eleven years. The last movie he did that was worth anything was Affliction, which was back in ninety eight. So, which is more than uh, uh, eleven years is like twenty years now, almost. Right? Yeah, which is um, crazy. Yeah, and and so you know, seeing him go from these schlocky B movies like The Canyons and Doggy Dog to a spiritual awakening and a damning uh, piece of filmmaking is incredible. And again, it's angry, it's mad. So, yeah. I highly recommend people check that one out. For sure. Uh, your... My number uh, seven is Shoplifters. This was the film that won the Palme d'Or this year at uh, Cannes. And Corrieta is a filmmaker that is very much in tuned with um, humanist stories. And he tells a story of a, ja a makeshift Japanese family living kind of on the outskirts of of uh tokyo and sort of how their um you know their lifestyle is sort of dictated by how much they either steal from stores or how they live on the very threads of or outskirts of society and what i kind of love about the film is that it never judges the characters it brings you to a place that says you can 
you can bring your own baggage to them. You can morally accuse them of them, but I'm not going to. I'm going to show you who they are, and each character has their own plot lines and stories to sort of unfold in really wonderful and exquisite pieces of monologues that are told throughout. And there's one in particular of this young girl early on who is brought into this family because her actual family um, is just abusing her and leaving her out in the cold as they squabble and fight over, uh, you know, money or um, are intoxicated. And you get to see these this family take her in. And it, it does ask you the question, is this the right choice? Is this the, the family that she should be with? But it's up to you to make those decisions. And I think that it's one of those movies that's very poignant, small, very small and 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 microscopic compared to some of the other movies on the list but i still think very profound and moving in that way yeah i recently i haven't seen it yet um i weirdly saw the trailer before i saw mowgli (laughs) (laughs) well yeah because it's going to be playing at the light box uh this friday december 21st um so that's why i saw the trailer before mowgli it wasn't (laughs) It's just a weird movie to see that um, before, but um, I thought the trailer was excellent. Like yeah. I really thought the trailer was really, really great, and um, it made me uh, uh, want to go see it. I skipped it at the festival just because it was another one of those long kind of. Um, and it is a slower movie as well. Like, and and I mean that as a good thing. Like you have to just kind of give yourself over to the movie. It's 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 paced in a way that is you know calming and and understanding and gentle and when you get to see you know how some of these characters have shorthands with each other the way that they sort of direct each other how to steal certain groceries or sort of dodge security cameras yeah that was in the trailer yeah people and and it's it's just so much fun but it's also very again very much a, a piece of great uh, world cinema that we don't often get anymore and when we do you know it's it's it has to win the palm door for people to pay attention to it right so. fair enough um my number seven is uh weirdly uh a movie by john krasinski uh, a quiet place um a movie that completely caught me by surprise um i don't think i, I mean if you told me that a John Krasinski directed movie would be in my top 10 uh, at the beginning of the year. I'd probably call you a liar. I'd not, say you're a holler. Not to say that um, John Krasinski's not a talented guy. I just uh, really didn't hear this one coming, I guess, to steal right. a pun from you. Um, I, I, yeah, man, I just think it's a completely, excellently um, well-crafted thriller um, uh the most well-behaved audiences I've, um, which maybe bumped it up a few points that I've ever experienced at the movies. Uh, you could really tell people were into this, um, has elements of, uh, uh, Jurassic park in there near the end. I just love this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> I love the sound. The sound is obviously the sound design and to, to make a big, uh, studio movie that has barely any dialogue with these kind of cool, creepy monsters. And, um, yeah, man, I just, uh, I, I really, really dug the shit out of this. And, um, uh, yeah. And shout out to, uh, Millicent Simmons, who was really wonderful also in, I loved uh, her in Wonderstruck. Yeah. yeah. Which is, I think, uh, uh, it was that this year, last year. Okay. Um, an underrated movie. I feel like that just came and went that no one really, uh, cared about. And, um, 
yeah, I think she does an excellent job in this, and I love that. Um, not love that, but like, um, um, she's actually deaf, right? And I, I think that brings an authenticity to that performance, and in Wonderstruck and in this film, and uh, have uh, Blunt and Krasinski uh, work together, and I just think that uh, again brings some authenticity to that relationship and uh, the surprising nature of that opening sequence. And um, sure, you, I think you can maybe pick this movie part a little bit if, especially you, after finish um, watching it, because yeah. you think like, oh, why don't they live? near a waterfall or something that can right. drown out how can they eliminate certain sounds completely yeah. and or why is there even a score for the movie at yeah, all because yeah. i know that's the thing right now that's going oh, is there is it? where people are saying like well the biggest criticism or why the movie ultimately fails is because there is a soundtrack or there is a score interesting i haven't read that yet but um yeah did you you liked it too, i liked right? it yeah. i liked it but 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 i'm one of those people that kind of was beginning to pick it apart after watching it not to say that i didn't enjoy it because i think it is a very um when as you're watching it engaging piece of filmmaking that you're on the edge of your seat and again you want to hold your breath and be completely quiet and pay attention to it as it's happening but then when you start thinking about it in in retrospect the suspension of disbelief kind of yeah, yeah but but that's but again you know it says something how entertaining it was while watching it and i do think it is krasinski's best film as a director because he's done two other really bad indie movies <laughs> brief interviews with hideous men and the hollerers which are you know like your typical or your generic sundance movies that nobody sees unless they get picked up by uh fox searchlight, fox searchlight or sony pictures <laughs> classics um, or I have and even then, <laughs> and yeah, and even then, it's it's a fifty fifty chance. Um, but here, he he, even though he doesn't love horror, he understands suspense, and I think that it really does work. And I really hope that if this does become a franchise, which Paramount has greenlit, uh, Quiet Place too, that he's able to expand on it. That isn't just repeating the same thing over again. Finds new ways to kind of invent the story or even go into the more minutia i kind of like this is crude but i kind of want to know like how people go to the bathroom in 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 a situation like this like they can't always find how people are surviving yeah because they can't always have like a mattress or or soundproofing a room like there's got to be situations where they're you know outside in the middle of nowhere or in you know uh vacated uh, facilities or, or abandoned buildings. Yeah, and I think it's just as I love post-apocalyptic films. It's just uh, it's just a, such an interesting thing to me of how people are surviving if the world just goes to shit. And um, I think it's an interesting take on that with creatures that can that can't see and can only hear. And I'm with you uh, where I think they do a cool job of showing the trail of sand that they walk on or how they eat with the leaf plates, right? So they don't use any cutlery or um, things like that. And, and maybe he can explain some of the plot holes like we got in like Rogue One that kind of retcons some things. And, right. Like, maybe he can fix his not mistakes but he can go hey fuck you i did think about some of that stuff and i'll show you now um not necessarily that you need to do that but um and just i'm really curious because he's not coming back to direct but he is writing yeah and probably producing as well yes and uh, who knows have they got a director yet no i don't think who knows he'll probably end up directing it yeah (laughs) like um he keeps saying the movie made so much money right like it was the big it was one of the big surprise hits of the of the spring last year yep um 
an excellent, well-crafted thriller that I, um, again, even with its kind of, um, it does what uh, it sets fault. out to, yeah, it's, and it engages the audience. Perfectly. Yeah, and if you can suspend your disbelief and not get too nitpicky, I think you'll. Not to say that you shouldn't do that. Like right. if if the stuff bothers you, I I totally get that. But for me, I can kind of take a step back and go okay well and then kind of give an excuse to each thing or something like that and still enjoy the movie for for what it is obviously enough to put it at number seven of of my favorite films of the year yeah and also just i'm so grateful that both uh, a quiet place and overlord didn't turn out to be uh cloverfield movies right they're almost too good for that now not saying because 10 cloverfield lane was excellent and the first cloverfield's great too but yeah it just feels like cloverfield paradox ruined it for everyone yeah, for sure. Uh, I think yep. our number six is the same movie. Is it? Hereditary. It is. Number six. Nailed it. Yeah. Six, six, six. Oh, Son shit. Of the devil. <sighs> oh, shit. Um, yeah, man. Uh, well, oh, I, oh, wait, wait. Oh, yeah. Good. Five. Set up. Um, dude, this movie, um, my jaw was just on the floor from the halfway point until the end of the movie. Um, I caught it a little bit later than most people because I was on vacation, I think, when it first came out. And you kept telling me, like, dude, you have to go see Hereditary. Yeah. Um, it's traumatizing. And, uh, you guys, uh, didn't undersell it at all. Um, it is completely and utterly traumatizing and with an amazing amazing performance by tony collette tony collette um, is going if she get she i hate saying this but i think she probably is going to be overlooked for the oscars again not that that validates right the performance being, but you like to see people rewarded for yeah that kind of especially too. with a performance that is completely balls to the wall incredible um she shows range from you know sympathy and empathy to insanity and fear and everything in between and you know that that energy to devote yourself that way into a role that's also very tragic in some regards and a character that is grieving the loss of somebody and who hasn't had the easiest time with a family tree that is suspicious to say the least um is an incredible piece of acting but i also have to say that ari aster um the writer director of the movie deserves so much credit as a first again another first time feature where you have this assured up-and-coming director who's done a couple shorts but he perfectly captures a balance between the gruesome and horrifying nature of family and the reality of it as well and for the most part he keeps you guessing whether or not this is all in her head or if this is actually some sort of uh, supernatural manifestation and what i love about that is that you could take away the supernatural aspect of it and, and just have a great family, family drama yeah. and about grieving and loss and but the movie kind of shows you at the end what it yeah, is. Yeah, and I think maybe that's the one slight I have against it because yeah. I would have still would have liked an ambiguous, um, you know, interpretation yourself whether or not this was happening. But the where you visuals, get a more literal kind yeah, of yeah. But the visuals are strong and subtle. I think that's the one thing that a lot of horror movie filmmakers. Um, need to watch this and say, okay, it doesn't need to be jump scares. It can just be somebody in the background. Oh my god, dude, when a light so is of turned yeah. off, and just for a quick second, oh, 
And the corner of your eye. Did, yeah. did you see? Did you see that? Yeah, see, exactly. And you right? might have yeah. completely missed it. Yeah. That's the thing. Like there is a couple scenes where you'll be watching what's happening and not realize there's something in the corner. And then once your eye gets it, it scares the shit out of you, and it yeah. doesn't need to be a jump scare. And you need to pay um, attention to the whole thing because people and things come back yeah to haunt you yeah there was one moment where i literally went oh fuck like when i was watching it like out loud in the theater because you're watching what's actually happening on the screen and then you look in the top corner and you see something and i just remember going oh fuck and like laughing because i was just like fuck that scared the shit out of me because like it's just there in the background and um the it's it's completely shocking too um i think they did a there's a couple twists in yeah that that you, that you one you don't see coming and the way that they present themselves um again you're just kind of disturbed and kind of in adoration and in respect for the movie having the balls to go there mm-hmm. and and again to face also uh depression and mental illness in a very honest way i think because it looks at the family tree and says like you know this character and these characters um aren't facing up to issues that they have and i think it's really wonderful to see uh, a movie that really is forward thinking about that kind of stuff completely agree it's fantastic and don't wait till next halloween to watch it just watch it right no. away and also it's very exciting because uh ari aster is following up hereditary uh, next year with midsummer so and it's another horror movie that takes place in sweden i believe right on man i'm in um you want to go with your number five yeah my number five is uh oh mandy mandy oh mandy uh, that yes. crept up there right at the end it, of the year it eh? did it's one of those movies where I kept putting it off because it, when it got its theatrical day and date release, um, it was it was around TIFF. So I had missed it then. And usually after TIFF, you're in that kind of... It would have been a great Midnight Madness movie. Oh, it would have. Oh, it w- I mean, it would have been a great Vanguard film, too. Um, it is a little slow at times, so I think yeah, it probably but would I have s- been... Yeah, but I still think it would have worked at midnight. Right, right. But... Um, yeah, so I, I, I missed it up until now, and I kind of regret not having the chance to see it in, in a theater because the the psychedelic visuals are just out of this world. And, I mean, the movie really hinges on them because it's your typical revenge movie, but, you know, with the exception of some very interesting caveats, um, you're given a, you know, psychedelic drug trip from Panos Cosmotos uh, who directed the movie, whose uh, first feature was this small Canadian sci-fi horror indie called Beyond the Black Rainbow. This, I think, is ten times better because it's a hybrid of uh, horror, fantasy, heavy metal rock, um, anime, and it just combines all these things with a primal Nick Cage rage performance that is also reined in weirdly and i i don't think it's as over the top as some people would necessarily expect it to be but in it a, gets there at times it, it gets there but the the rage or the insanity that the character is expressing i think is understandable in the situation that he's in and it also looks at male insecurity in a very funny way the way that you know this cult leader who abducts uh, Nicolas Cage's girlfriend played by uh, um, Andrea Riceboro 
um, you know, laughs at this guy's uh, insecurity and and uh, his impunity and just thinks that he's a small-minded man who thinks he's a big shot and that kind of stuff I really love. And then it's all sort of, uh, it comes to a climax in a chainsaw fight that is just was amazing. so ridiculous. Yeah. But I think the true scene stealer in this movie is the Cheddar Goblin. Oh, yeah, Cheddar Goblin. Cheddar Shout Goblin out. is amazing. Yeah, shout out to the Cheddar Goblin, for sure. Just vomiting cheddar <laughs> on children. Kraft macaroni and cheese. Yeah, or not Kraft, sorry. It looked like Kraft. They yeah. obviously couldn't use yeah. Kraft, but... Um, yeah, it's some good shit, man. Oh man, it's just it's it's just a, it's just a head trip. Yeah, it's a head trip. Hundred uh, percent. And those bikers are terrifying. Weed is legal in Canada now, yeah. so I'll just go do that. Like those bikers, I just want to say that. Like, oh, they because are because yeah. they're they're you can tell that like they they're human, but they're not. Like they're kind well, of like they almost, almost summon them, right? Yeah, like, they like are almost kind of like demons, but. I don't know. It's, it's there's they were humans. Maybe they're like a, a mutation of humans, and then like even the way that they drink that you know the, the uh, disgusting like goop. Yeah, that's like, also a psychedelic drug. Yeah. Because when Nick Cage just oh, tips just, his finger in it, he he sees yeah he and, sees God or something like yeah. that. Um, so yeah, this was a this was a great experience, and and again like a, a wonderful midnight movie. Yeah, in, and you were just high on acid when you yeah. watched it, right? So uh, <laughs> I was high on life, man. My number five is uh, uh, Brady Corbett's uh, Vox Lux, uh, a film that um, took me by surprise during TIFF. Didn't know anything about it. it was a late edition. Um, I hadn't seen his first film, uh, Portrait of. Is a portrait of uh, a the the child the childhood of a leader yeah childhood of a leader with Robert Pattinson um, and Stacey Martin who is in this movie yes uh, this is a scathing twenty first uh, portrait of the twenty first century a um a, I think a much more interesting um portrayal of the music industry than what you would see maybe this year in A Star Is Born both tackling kind of. Um, similar things of how that industry kind of capitalizes on people and breaks people down and, and also brings them up. Um, and, uh, I don't know, just a very shocking opening, um, that, and I think it, it, it feels like a completely different movie to begin with. It does. And, um, I really think where it goes after that is really interesting of, of capitalizing on a, a tragic event in the U S and, and, and turning someone into a superstar because of it. And, um, I think it's disturbing and, um, and interesting. And I think the, the music by Sia is, is intentionally kind of, mm, it's almost vapid. Yeah, like it's, like, it's disposable pop music and it kind of, you can interpret it as, you know, pop music is, um, nothing but empty calories in terms of uh, listening to and just dis- completely disposable. Or you can say that pop music is, you know, a savior in a way for this character. But the music particularly isn't memorable, but I think it is supposed to be by design because the music is probably written by a committee of people sitting in a room together and oh, saying, it was, it was hey, Sia and other this. people too. No, 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 but, like but I a, mean for the character. For the character, yeah, yeah. 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 Because they and, even say that the, that she's not necessarily the most talented uh, person, but when opportunity knocked, she took that opportunity and ran with it. Yeah, and um, I th- again, I, it checks off all those. You can kind of find a... Um, 
an algorithm of, of what kind of movie that Matt Rohrbeck likes. You do like interesting cinematography with chapter based storytelling and a, and a twisted kind of surprising, um, uh, uh, plot line. And, um, yeah, man, I don't know. I just think like right from the opening credits of this movie, I was like, Oh fuck, what is this? And then, um, I think I, I love Natalie Portman. Um, uh, again, when she is first introduced into this movie i was like i don't know about this and uh i bought into her character after and the last act feels like it's a uh, a concert film really like a like imagine uh the, the jonathan demi justin timberlake like netflix special or something like that like it's weirdly uh willem defoe's voiceover is is amazing um i you like say that it's it, devilish um i love the kind of um how it tackles uh, her early life, and then um, the young actress who, Raffi Cassidy, yeah, then plays her daughter later, which is a weird, interesting choice, I think, too. That and Jude Law works. is the kind of sleazy seedy manager. manager, and I just think this is such a scathing portrait of that industry and i think um it's a real takedown of how um vain and kind of self-serving that superficial um, superficial yeah whether turning her injury into like a fashion statement right and things like that like uh, or how that's reinterpreted um, by terrorists in croatia and like how that can turn on the media and sort of how everybody is cannibalizing you know, culture, pop culture and, and music and uh, the media itself, which I think is interesting. And again, I think it's very much a, a, a scathing uh, indictment of, of the music, of industry. the music industry, and pop of culture, pop general, culture yeah. and how we consume it and what we consider to be, um, you know, uh, influential and important. Because even, you know, Portman, who is who's amazing in it, and it, it is a supporting role you know, is at 11 or 12 in the performance, but you can see by the time that she gets to where she is in that present moment that she has gone through, you know, a series of events that have given her the success and fame that maybe she got too early and also on top of being a survivor that it's kind of shaped her to become this fake individual this phony in terms of um even her accent her her staten island uh accent seems like it's put on like it's not supposed to be real like it's just something she's using as a as a gimmick and everything is gimmicky about her um and, and also it, shout out to the takedown of roundtable interviews <laughs> yes although it's it is weird because christopher abbott who has a cameo uh in in the roundtable interview and i think he's even in the trailer um has more questions in the round table than any reporter would normally get. Ah, uh, you haven't sat through that many round tables. No, but 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 that but that's the thing though. Like usually it's like one question. I know everyone was very patient with him. Yes. There are certain people who are maybe a bit more pushy that will take control of a round table. I know I'm just giving you shit, but um, it, it's funny that everyone just kind of sits there and let him lets him talk, and right. um, which is funny. Um. Yeah, man, I, I love Vox Lux. It, I can't wait to revisit it. Um, for it's sure. real good. It's uh, real good. Number four. Number four. My number four is Burning. Right. Lee Dong Chang's Burning, his follow-up to his 2010 film Poetry, a complete 180. Is this the, that's the last movie he made before this? Yes. Wow. And so this time around, we have a bizarre love triangle turned 
suspense thriller with Steven Yeun giving an amazing supporting performance that is uh, both antagonistic and charming at the same time. You have a protagonist who wants to be uh, a writer in the vein of William Faulkner, um, sort of falling in love with a girl from his village that he still goes to regularly because he has to take care of the farm that his father uh, can no longer look after because he is in jail for being um, violent and uh, has anger issues. And so the love story or the love triangle kind of forms when um, this uh, girl goes to Kenya, I believe, um, and when she comes back, it, uh, she brings back with her Stephen Yun, who's this sophisticated guy who reads books and cooks and, you know, is everything. Listens to classical music. Listens to classical music. <laughs> while he cooks spaghetti. Yes, while he cooks spaghetti, which is an amazing piece of dialogue uh, in, in the film. And what I love about this movie um, is tonally it is just, at one moment it can be funny and at another moment it can be terrifying and there is a uh, sequence at, at Magic Hour that has the uh, female lead dancing outside the uh, the farmhouse where the main character lives. And it is so gorgeous. It reminds you of something of a David Lynch movie like Completely. Audrey dancing. Yeah. Um, but it's also tragic. I, I, I think that when you find out what that title means, you really understand the, the, the weight of... The situation and how it's turning into something else yeah it's uh as i mentioned er very early on in the show that it stuck with me the entire year and um a movie i'm i keep saying this but like um i i i do want to rewatch and uh, in the comfort of my own home yeah too <laughs> one of the best cat movies of the year too yeah good year for <laughs> cats um speaking of cats my number four i love dogs uh don't need to go into it no again cats. uh we talked about it when you brought it up earlier in the show yeah. um uh again oozing with style um i love recent wes anderson like you mentioned i think fantastic mr fox moving on when he became even more cartoony and really kind of threw himself into that uh grand budapest hotel and isla dogs are both my some of my favorites of their their years um uh, yeah, dude, uh, I don't know what else to say, but like from the opening credits of that movie, I just had a smile on my face and um, I, I I really, really do love Wes Anderson now. And I, I never thought I'd be one of those people. <laughs> right. And um, but I am very I love his sense of symmetry and his use of pastel colors and, and all the kind of classic cliched wes anderson stuff that people would throw in your face but all I the really, quirks yeah all, just all the all the quirks man so I, I i really loved it well we already uh went over my number three quite a bit first reform so we can yeah. uh pass that on and, i definitely go watch first reform yes. as well uh on to my number three uh one that hasn't shown up on uh a list yet uh avengers infinity war i dude i've seen this movie three or four times this year now and um it originally was way further down not that i didn't like it but again i was just like oh that was a really exciting solid uh semi solid snap semi conclusion of the first 10 years of the of the mcu and i mean i mentioned earlier i'm a huge uh marvel fan and a huge superhero fan and uh, again i gotta be true to myself that like i just um maybe not uh 
the the best movie of the year, but um, one of my favorites. And I just think everything from uh, that ending, which we won't spoil, but by this time I'm sure you know exactly what we're talking about, uh, to the balance of all of these different characters and just the sense of pacing for a movie that's three hours long and just the scale of this movie and the sheer uh, amount of work it would have taken from the special effects to uh, God, I can only imagine the coordinators trying to put together the schedules of like all these actors and how to get these done. And yes, I think the Russo brothers uh, on like, they don't necessarily have a particular style like their style is marvel style um more so than what you would maybe see in a uh ryan coogler or a um shane black or something like that but i think they are the perfect guys to kind of take that marvel style and still execute it probably um the best out of any of those kind of um work for hire guys like i don't necessarily i think they are really passionate about this universe and that's why they've kind of taken the reins from joss whedon and and obviously what they did with um the captain america series leading into civil war which is essentially an avengers movie and now doing these um yeah man i just uh i think the character moments and how they um take the different teams and kind of pair characters together that you haven't seen together uh before i think is ingenious and um again i still do think it's half of a movie so it is hard to say that this half of a movie is i i do and i love thick thick daddy thanos being the main (laughs) character and it is thanos's journey so i really do feel like if you think of it that way it is almost a complete journey of thanos from start to finish was able to do what he set out to yeah, it is he his, his it's goal. his hero's journey right yeah. and then um and uh, the end One game love to rule them all that and again just like we have never seen something like this before where you've had 18 movies leading up into this one giant spectacle and um the more i watch it the more i find to really love out of it and um I cannot wait to see where Endgame goes and it's pure escapism and it's silly and there's people dressing up in goofy costumes and shooting lasers at each other. But in the end, that's kind of why I go to the movies. Like laser like, cats. Yeah. Like I, again, there are movies like first reformed or, or uh, hold the dark even or uh, widows where I'm looking for like a little bit more out of the movie than necessarily some guys in costumes <laughs> shooting right. lasers at each other. But, but yeah, but then there were movies I, like that or even, even like to a lesser extent bumblebee which turned out to be an okay movie right and that's what i mean sometimes i just go because these are things that i grew up with and yes it's nostalgic but i've never seen them in a way that you can see them now and uh um i i really give them credit for going there with the ending as much as they'll probably again fix most of that i mean we've already know that spider-man far from home's coming and black panther 2's but do we greenlit and I, they haven't like in doctor strange 2 but marvel's being very coy of announcing these things so i've done i think they've done a really great job at um 
kind of committing to uh, that ending. And as much as I think that we've talked about this before, I still think I put myself in the character's shoes. And as much as we know that those characters are coming back or this is part one of two movies, this still exists in that universe that they created. And those characters are really going through those things. And I'm like, so it means a lot to them as much as we step through the the glass of the screen or whatever you want to call it and the fourth wall. And, and, and we know essentially that okay those people who are gone probably aren't gone but um i still see how it affects tony stark who we've been with for 10 years and and captain america and i don't know man like uh, yeah and god bless okay he's not in this movie that's why it's uh on my top 10 no i'm kidding um but dude i i don't know you as you can tell i'm very passionate about the the mcu and and um i just uh really loved infinity war and i i think it was not the best action movie of the year because that's coming up, but right. uh, it, it's I think pure from a pure spectacle and world building and universe building thing. It's just it's almost perfect. I think so. Right. Well, I uh, I thought it was I thought it was fine. Uh, I won't say that it's an infinity bore, uh, <laughs> but but what I what I will say about it that I really actually do respect, and I saw the movie twice, so that is saying something. Yeah, and coming from a guy who struggled to kind of get into the MCU for the most part in the early days, because I remember talking to you, and you were not that you were super negative on it. You still gave each one a shot, but. Um, I think you didn't for the the first little while you just didn't care all that much, right? right? But what I really do appreciate and what what you you're saying is that it is a culmination of ten years of work, um, proving that you know patience pays off, and it's something that the DCEU <laughs> needs to learn because in order to get to that moment that is deserved, you need to build to it. You just can't throw it out there and say, "Look at this and." just be completely overwhelmed you have taken a tapestry of beloved characters and some not really well known and turned them into beloved characters like i am still stunned that guardians of the galaxy have become a household name brand yeah like a talking raccoon and tree like we were doing movie night and we first heard about the news of that we were laughing our asses off yeah and now to see it become you know iconic in the way that any other like like batman or superman or spider-man is like in terms of the big superheroes whether it be marvel or dc it is it is amazing and it is a testament to marvel putting these characters together and figuring out how they can all work in a puzzle that has built to this moment and you know when endgame comes out it is going to be very fascinating to see how this will close phase three and begin phase four and how this will also close the door on a decade's worth of work yeah it's the most elaborate tv series ever created yeah. right as but much i would say as it like, is above average tv and it has gotten I mean. better it has evolved yeah and i i do think that they get better and better and kevin feige i think um as they become less uh protective over their properties they give filmmakers more freedom of, as we've seen in recent years with some of the people that they bring on board or they don't fire as many people that you see that in the in lucasfilm now which hopefully in a few years people they'll be more comfortable with letting people i mean they just cast werner herzog in a star wars series so maybe they're starting to get there but um oh god could you imagine werner herzog directing guardians of the galaxy 3 that'd be great um but that's the thing when 
it's crazy to me that we're at a moment where a Asgardian god can drop onto Earth with a giant hammer with a raccoon and a tree right <laughs> like, and it's exciting and, and yeah, people, people take it seriously like, I, and like, people are needing to see it as soon yeah. as possible like it's so goofy but like i don't know like it's again like i think there is a place for this kind of stuff and i still think it can be exciting and important and still um have important themes and, and important dramatic moments and as goofy as it is it, I, I still think like well, it does talk about overpopulation, too, in a very interesting way, and whether or not Thanos, is, another, Thanos is, yeah. is a genocidal maniac, which I think he is, or is he a savior trying to, you know, help save the the, the rest of the world? And I think it is a topic that is very critical in today's age in terms of, you know, the world is just continually getting bigger and bigger, and we are consuming every resource available and what there's over six billion people in the world probably more um so it is talking about relevant issues so it's not completely just you know a traditional like uh, i'm gonna kill everyone just for the sake of killing everyone yeah or i'm gonna take over the world like there is some interesting motivations to the character and the story and i think josh brolin did a really wonderful job in the motion capture performance agreed uh your number three or two uh number two which is your number one, and that is yes, Mission Impossible. Well talk, yeah. Spoilers for my number one. Fallout. Yes. Uh, one of the best action movies ever made. Tom um, Cruise, he runs, he jumps, he breaks he, an ankle. He learns how to fly a helicopter. <laughs> he's he's He really, he does it all, and he does it for the audience. The audience, yeah. And, and, and you can really tell that, and it does affect the experience, right. I think, too. And he is just willing to go the nine yards to make it as an entertaining experience as possible. And realistic as possible, as possible yeah. too. And, and I think also with this movie, talking about culminations, this is the best Mission Impossible uh, movie to date, and a franchise has been around for twenty years. Yeah, right? and it feels like just now it's peaked. Like we've just finally gotten, and not to say that the the last couple haven't been great because they have been. Uh, Rogue Nation. Well, I think and they Ghost go, Protocol. They get better, fantastic. other than two. Yeah, and and three. Let's not talk about that. Three. Say what you will. I still think there's a great Philip Seymour Hoffman performance in there, and I like JJ. Um, but I do think even if you switch one and three, but four, five, and six just get better and better as much as like you could swap four and five anyways they're all very good yeah and it's also just interesting to learn how a lot of those action set pieces were put together like christopher mcquarrie and tom cruise and their uh scouting uh location team would find interesting places as they were making the movie and then write the script or write the action sequences to tailor them to the location. And so that is kind of like, you know, a fly by the seat of your pants filmmaking for a studio movie. Like that's the kind of thing you would hear about in a small budgeted movie where the writer is, you know, actually writing pages worth of, of um, dialogue and uh, action within the script. But here he was doing it on a studio film and the person that was protecting uh, Macquarie was... Uh, Tom Cruise because Tom Cruise uh, is the be all and end all when it comes to these movies as a producer as well and you just have to appreciate how amazing the stunt work is um, how the score and style works and some of the just some of the best 
fight scenes you you you've seen oh my God, that, that bathroom, bathroom scene, scene is amazing the final act of the movie is henry just, cavill's mustache yeah that and it's just the pacing is unbelievable in that movie it just goes from one to ten and then just stays at ten throughout the whole movie and it works though. yeah and that's hard to do yeah. like just to keep that up for the whole movie and never wane at really any moment like it still includes plot and exposition and gets to a to b to c to the final location but in that it just keeps going and as soon as that movie starts it does not stop it does as soon as he gets his mission statement yeah it is just off the ground and we are going yeah we are running like tom cruise just keep on going and we are not going to stop and 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 the characters again over time we we've gotten to know more about them and the way that we care about Ving Rhames's character and Simon Pegg's character and uh Michelle Monaghan Michelle Monaghan and, and finally the way that they've kind of tailored her into the story a little bit better instead of just kind of throwing her off to the yeah, side yeah, yeah. um it was was really wonderful and rebecca but they Ferguson use that as, well. as a plot yeah. point that the throwing off to the side and i think yeah. that's actually really but interesting. it comes to it comes to to fruition here in a way that i think is more than just a cameo or a mention and and i feel like this is the movie that really wraps it up beautifully and you could end here i mean i'm sure they'll make another one like tom cruise seems like he wants to get as many in now until he he kills himself until he kills himself or until he hits 70 and realizes he can't do it anymore but he just again like i just feel that this is the best of the series and i don't know how you could top this yeah i I, and I, i was initially wary because what one thing I did like about the Mission Impossible franchise is that they brought someone new in each yes. film to put their own spin on that franchise, and I think each movie is uniquely different because of that. Like um, the De Palma's movie is obviously not like the John Woo movie. That's obviously not like the Abrams movie. That's not like the Bird movie. That's not like the McQuarrie movie. Uh, right? Am I missing one? No, that's no, it. no, that's it. And then so initially when he signed on to do it, I was like, ah, you know what? I loved rogue nation i thought it was is quite good but like i would like to see someone else put their own spin on this but i think Macquarie understood that too and i i think he's maybe even said this in interviews where he wanted to make sure this felt like it was coming from a completely different filmmaker than the last one right and this really does have that kind of nolan feel to it whether to the score and even to some of the the cinematography and like it or sky uh skyfall even it has that kind of relentless kind of uh pacing that we talked about almost like the, a ticking clock uh, yeah like exactly you only have so much time to get this mission done and everything is vital in terms of you know getting the nuclear uh cores and you know making sure that uh the the sean harris character is dealt with and you know saving uh, a whole part of 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 asia like at the same time in all this process so it's it's one of those movies that i feel you know completely is a direct sequel to rogue nation but at the same time stylistically is a very different movie as well so i think that it is one of the best experiences theatrically as well like i think people hopefully went to go and see this in the theater that wanted to yeah and it's spectacular it lends in itself IMAX, yeah. to an imax experience the 4k is excellent and has the expanded imax ratio i mean doesn't obviously emulate that experience that you'd get into a theater but um dude yeah like we we didn't talk about the um 
the halo jump kind of thing that they do too is amazing and that whole sequence actually (laughs) happened and was in one take and they didn't shoot it in one take but they it's all one shot um they did many many takes of it but the bathroom scene's amazing the whole helicopter sequence at the end the whole last act is absolutely spectacular and um it's a real cliffhanger the the chase scene in paris i believe is is crazy and like i remember nevis turning to me and being like is he doing all of this like is this all like him and i'm like yes every single thing you basically see there might be a few the times where um there's that was there a good snl skit about tom cruise's um uh, stunt double and have you seen that with anyways um tangent uh but fuck man it's good and yeah. we make fun being like, well, Tom, you don't need to do that. You know, it'll be still just as exciting if it's like we use a stunt double or something like that. But I just, it brings, you actually are scared when you're watching it for him, even though right. you know he survived, obviously. But um, just seeing his face in that helicopter doing all the moves and shout out to Henry Cavill's mustache as well. Yes. It's amazing. One of uh, the best supporting actors of the year, Henry Cavill's mustache. Uh, should I go into my number two and then yes, yes, yeah. and then you go into your number one and we're good, right? Yep. Uh, so again, I, I mean, this kind of worked out because I feel like this and Fallout has been teetering number one and two back and forth in my head um, since I saw this movie last week. But my number two film is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Uh, again, check out our review if you haven't. I think it was an excellent conversation that we had um, going um, reviewing the film on Untitled Movie Reviews. Um, yeah, man, I I don't know what else to say, but um, I think this is one of the best representations of a comic book movie ever to be on screen. One of the most accurate. I think it introduces a completely uh, fresh take on Spider-Man and um, that universe and um, completely balances um, uh, a lot of characters in a, in a really great way with an art style that's colorful and beautiful and surprising. Um, it has it's heart-wrenching and heartwarming and has uh, a lot of great twists that I did not see coming at all. Um, I'm absolutely in love with this movie, and I think it's uh, maybe the best movie of the year, but Fallout is just that good, too. Right. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, it's one of those films that didn't make my top 25, but the more I think about it, the more... like I I know it's going to be one of those movies that I'm probably going to revisit more than a lot of the films on my top 25 and I think that with you know this it, it it shows you that the one area that the comic book movie really hasn't utilized all that much especially recently is uh the animation genre and that the format lends itself perfectly to creating uh comic book adaptations that are very true to the panel but also can be experimental for the filmmakers who are harnessing this format. And so I hope that, you know, after the success of this movie, more people actually do try to rip it off or try to create their own versions of it, but using other uh, comic book properties, because there's a lot there that you can really mine from. And hopefully, uh, you know, more people will, will give that, uh, will give it a shot. Yeah. hundred percent. Check out our review. If you want to hear more thoughts on Spider-Verse, but I mean, just stop everything you're doing and go see it right now. Yes, it's, it's, it's playing right now, and it's it's great. So my number one is the uh, controversial choice, uh, Roma, directed by Alfonso Cuaron, um, a movie that is both 
intimate and epic at the same time in scale and scope taking place in early 1970s uh, Mexico from a memory uh, from the filmmaker specifically about um, his nanny and caretaker Lebo uh, who the character's name is uh, Cleo played by uh, Ulitsi Aprecia Um, and she is kind of the main sort of um, perspective of the film and you never feel sorry for her or you never uh, feel any kind of um, sadness you feel empathy in the situation that she is, is living in but at the same time you care um, about the family as well and what is going on between this year and what Alfonso Cron is able to do so beautifully shot in black and white uh, the sound is amazing in Dolby Atmos um he's able to create a very immersive experience as though you're walking in to a time and place that you um unless you lived in that time and had had traveled there you have never been to Mexico in the early 1970s and the closest thing that we have to time travel I still believe is movies because they can take you back to a place where you haven't been whether it be a recreation like something like this or an old older movie that is now you know considered a document and that does this and again you know you're looking at class and race and um gender and how all these things play in this one year and i think you know it takes its time to tell the story and the way that we have the first shot of uh you know water spilling on the tile and a, a shot of a plane flying overhead to uh, a high angle shot or a, or a low angle shot looking up uh, to the plane flying and seeing that there's a big world out there but the world we're exploring is this one that's right in front of us yeah I mean I don't have much to say about Roma I left halfway through during TIFF um, just wasn't my thing and I'm not going to really insert myself into the conversation because I just don't have much to say and it doesn't really add anything because I don't really even have the full experience um, for me it just uh I just didn't care. And I think that I, I just, I needed to, again, it was a long festival. It was near the end. I just kind of needed to get out of there and it just wasn't working for me. Um, right. now I have a chance to watch it again on Netflix. Uh, I might do that. Um, I got a, about an hour or halfway through with you at, during the festival. Um, but again, I don't, again, it's totally fine that people love it. I'm just not in that camp. And, um, uh, I, and I think that's okay. Right. So, um, Great, man. Uh, a great year for movies. Um, I uh, thank you for doing this. And um, I just want to thank you personally, because this has been um, uh, a ton of fun just doing this podcast and starting this. 2018 is both a weird year, as I think the last couple of years in on Earth <laughs> have been. Right. Um, but a really great year for movies. I think a really great year for us personally, kind of getting back into doing this. Um, I've had a blast going to screenings and doing the festival and then starting this up again. And I feel like it's been a great creative output for us and for me. And it's really got my heart back into it. And, and I've been excited about um, the movies again. And I mean, I've always excited about them, but when doing this is really kind of, and getting back into doing the screenings and talking with all of you guys has been fantastic. So um, we didn't have time to kind of go through our letterbox stuff. Maybe we'll do that next week um, or in two weeks when we do our 2019 preview. Um, yeah. But um, 
we've already gone two hours oh wow <laughs> um but i had a blast man thank you for everything and uh thank you for a great year you're, uh, you're that, a good friend you know, that will right back at you and i mean again like this is i miss doing this like this was you know a lot of fun when we were doing it a few years ago so it's just like you know we're picking up again and dusting off and 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 just you know talking uh, about movies all the time and we we do that normally so why not you know capitalize on it in a in a podcast form and see if we can uh, exploit it for all right. it's worth or if uh, even if three people are listening yeah, uh, we, specifically brendan yeah we thank uh, you guys so much for doing that yeah too. and so and you know like this is only just the the beginning so to speak and we're going into a whole new year and and hopefully this will you know continue to expand and find new ways of uh becoming more and more uh engaging and finding ways to uh find more people to 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 listen if they want to and 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 again just doing it for ourselves because it's just fun to do yeah for sure um thank you all for listening um if you guys didn't know this has been the end well, i mean if you got this far i'm sure i'm sure you did we're the netflix uh, of podcasts yeah this is the uh untitled movie podcast we dare you to finish it um available every week if you like this we have another channel called untitled movie reviews we'd love for you to subscribe and listen there uh where we do kind of um shorter much shorter than this two hours and 10 minutes um but reviews of upcoming and new release films in cinemas or on streaming um once again my name is matt Rohrbeck. you can follow all my work uh on my twitter at matt Rohrbeck and at untitledmoviepodcast.com and i'm here with my bfca buddy eric marchin and you can find my work on rogerstv.com slash cinema scene and i'm on twitter and instagram at em6211 We'll be back on New Year's Eve for a special 2019 preview episode, and maybe we'll kind of poke into some of our letterbox stats of our most watched uh, actors and directors. Yeah, because we'll year. squeeze a couple movies, I think, in but before, before then for the final tallies. Yeah, exactly. Got to get those final numbers. Uh, thank you, guys. We'll see you next or in a couple weeks. Have a Merry Christmas or a Happy Holidays, whatever you celebrate. Yes.